This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. There are several stories, Tim, that are certainly on our radar uh, about the virus and also about the vaccine. One is among the most read on the Bloomberg today. It's about a Bloomberg opinion editor who tested positive for COVID-19 even after receiving both doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, uh, vaccine. This can happen. And then we've got the story about how states are giving in to the lure of reopening, defying health warnings, which has caused even one governor to say unmasking is almost a macho thing. I mean, this is our backdrop. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the backdrop. We're a year into this pandemic, and Dr. Ian Lusbader is clinical associate professor of medicine. He joins us on many Fridays from the NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, what do you make of this of this story uh, about our colleague who got both doses of the Pfizer vaccine but still found herself uh, infected with COVID? Happy Friday, Tim and Carol. <laughs> uh, Sorry. <laughs> Happy Friday. Very, uh, you know, this is interesting. I've definitely seen a number of patients who, in between their first and second shot, have tested positive and have had mild COVID symptoms. Um, uh, and fewer patients, uh, really, after their second shot, get it. Now, part of it uh, depends on the timing. In other words, we do know that even after the second shot, you do need approximately two weeks to really get the full 95% uh, protection. So uh, it's certainly not a guarantee. And also testing positive may be different than actually getting the disease. In other words, you can recover the virus from the nasopharynx, but you may not be sick with it. And I just want to note for our listeners who haven't yet read this story, she does have, have mild symptoms right mm -hmm. now and compares them to if it were just a cold. So that's good. Yes, exactly. Right. So so I believe, you know, we wouldn't know if she hadn't had the vaccine, would she have had a mild infection anyway? And we don't really know, could this be one of the variants that may mm -hmm. be somewhat uh, resistant to the uh, to the vaccine? You know, and unfortunately, uh, I think we're spoiled. I think we want 100 percent on many uh, areas in life guarantees, whether it's the stock market or uh, Mm -hmm. or the Fed or the vaccines. But I, I, I am happy with the 95% numbers. And we're certainly seeing a drop in the number of hospitalizations. So I think we have to proceed ahead. And um, I think most people would be okay with, uh, with sort of the common cold symptoms that people do get for many kinds of coronaviruses, not just uh, COVID-19. And a little perspective, this story, um, Ian, also talks about that there's only one vaccine that has been proven to provide so-called sterile immunity, which is basically, right, protection that just completely blocks a virus from infecting you, and that is smallpox. Correct, correct, yes. I, I, I'm one of the few older people who actually got a smallpox vaccine uh, back in the day, and we really eradicated smallpox except for, you know, small vials in, in uh, bio labs, but that was really a worldwide problem for many years until enough people got vaccinated. Uh, 
also there are mutations and so forth that that are less prevalent uh, than we're seeing now with COVID-19. It really is getting pressure uh, to mutate as as uh, there are fewer pockets that are susceptible. Is it fair to say too the efficacy, um, Ian, as you said, that even though you get the vaccine with these variants, that the actual efficacy of the vaccines goes down a little bit. First of all, just in a real world setting and against these variants, which might be uh, a little bit tougher than the initial strain. Yes, I, I think the numbers are coming in a little bit lower. We're not really seeing the mass number of, of hospitalizations. So I think it's really the best we've got. And I think we do. The mRNA vaccines are certainly could be tweaked if any of these strains do seem to be uh, mutating beyond, uh, you know, resistance to the to the vaccine. But I think um, as we're getting more and more people vaccinated, we are seeing, you know, states and other localities saying, you know, we're, we have COVID fatigue and, and we're putting everyone back out there. But I certainly think we need to be careful exactly for these reasons that even if you've had the vaccine, you do need to be you know, careful for the time being uh, until really uh, th- this has been uh, reduced in number. Well, you mentioned the states that are slowly reopening or in some cases like Texas and Mississippi abruptly and quickly mm-hmm. reopening. Uh, if you were advising Governor Abbott in Texas, who is removing the mask mandate starting next week, allowing businesses to go at 100 percent capacity, what would you say to him? You know, I totally understand the concept of COVID fatigue. Uh, a couple of weekends ago, I was down in Florida and uh, that certainly is a little more loose. I think. Yeah, so I've heard from your... people who've been there. <laughs> did you? You flew, I assume, right? I did. Yeah, okay. and uh, that whole concept of the middle seat empty. No, not not. Uh, yeah. People are sitting shoulder to shoulder. And had I not had two vaccines, I would have been, you know, very very concerned. The people I just casually spoke to, a number of them did have the vaccines. So, you know, I think. Um, you know, I think that would certainly be a risk. It's, uh, the airlines try and reassure you by, you know, high uh, uh, ventilation rates, high turnover of the cabin. But, you know, none of these things are 100 percent. And I think people still need to use good judgment, whether you're in Texas or Connecticut or Florida. Uh, I think it is reasonable to slowly reopen. And I think as the weather gets warmer. Uh, at least in the past, we've seen some reduction in viral transmission for a variety of viruses. So I think we are getting closer to a more normal existence. But I would say uh, we really still need to encourage people to, you know, try and use good judgment, certainly get vaccinated. I think the the light is at the end of the tunnel, but I don't think we're there yet, you know, based on herd immunity. And I think with only 16 percent of, uh, you know, adults being vaccinated, I don't think we can quite um, relax yet. Carol was talking about this Pew Research Vaccine Hesitancy Study. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine from NYU Langone's Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. Some really interesting news here from the Pew Research Center. COVID-19 vaccination hesitancy in the U.S. is ebbing, including among black Americans, while partisan differences in people's intention to get vaccinated is widening. So 39% said in November that they probably or definitely wouldn't get a shot. That number declined to 30% in a February 16th uh, poll published on Friday. Dr. Lesbader, do you see that anecdotally happening around you, that va- people who were hesitant to get the vaccine are no longer hesitant? 
I think we're seeing some improvement, but I, I agree. With you. I, I've heard a number of uh, different uh, excuses for uh, for wanting to watch and wait, uh, including, well, I want this vaccine or that vaccine, uh, or I've heard, you know, uh, rumors about this or that. And really, at the end of the day, what I tell everyone is just, you know, get it. Uh, there are very, very few conditions. Other I love than the way you say that. Allergies. Just get it. <laughs> Just get it. <laughs> exactly. Like like Betty Ford kind of back back in the day, those who remember. Um, so I think it's really important for everyone to do it. There is no um, evidence that one vaccine or another provides significant improvement uh, or side effects. Or if you have an underlying condition, one vaccine, whether it's the viral vector or the mRNA, and we may at some future point wind up giving another vaccine if it turns out that we need to do that. And there's no evidence that that would be of any risk. So I agree with you. Initially, we had uh, certainly uh, physicians embrace this, you know, numbers in the 80, 90 percent vaccine acceptance and many others socioeconomically or or different um, uh, ethnic groups feel really uh, concerned, you know, that this was experimental, it was rushed. But I think as we're seeing people do basically very well, uh, we're seeing less vaccine hesitancy, which is key. And the only way we're really going to get to that herd immunity and ultimately get where everyone wants, which is really to open up and have masks elective. If you want to wear a mask, go ahead. You don't have to. Um, that's still a few months away at the rate we're going. Do you feel like, though, at the rate we're going in terms of vaccines and the rollout and how things are, I feel like the president coming out at the beginning of the week and we moved up, you know, he moved up his outlook for when there would be enough vaccines for all Americans. Do you feel like that almost every week that you've got to check in and maybe revise your thoughts on when the world gets back to, quote unquote, normal? Well, I think uh, we're going to have a vaccine glut soon. I still have a number of patients, um, you know, here in in the tri-state area that that 75 and older, a vast majority of people have been vaccinated uh, either in hospitals or Javits or other vaccine centers, 65 and older. And now we're looking at people under 65, many of whom really want it, but don't meet specific criteria such as hypertension, diabetes, you know, lung disease. I would really just open it up to everyone at this point now that we have J&J and really uh, just say, hey, come come and get it. Uh, people who've uh, experienced places like the Javits Center have had great reviews. They say it's very organized, very thorough, very meticulous, kind of the um, Israeli model where you're just moved from station to station. So I think we now have the infrastructure to do it. And uh, if it were me, I would open it up to everyone instead of, people having to right. really search for different sites that, that have leftover vaccine right. at the end of the day. Hey, listen, we got to run. Dr. Ian Lospader, thank you so much over at NY Lango. We do want to take you to the Roosevelt Room at the White House. President Biden giving an economic update. It is a playback from some earlier comments. Let's listen in. 100,000 small businesses. All those empty storefronts aren't just shattered dreams. There are warning lights that are going off in state and local budgets that are being stretched because of the lack of uh, tax revenue. And some of last month's job growth is a result of the December relief package. But without a rescue plan, these gains are going to slow. We can't afford one step forward and two steps backwards. We need to beat the virus, provide essential relief, and build an inclusive recovery. People need the help now. In less than two weeks, 
enhanced unemployment benefits will begin to expire for 11 million people. At least 7 million kids don't have enough food to eat on a regular basis. 13 million people are behind in their rent. And the rescue plan is absolutely essential for turning this around, getting kids back to school safely, getting a lifeline to small business, and getting the upper hand on COVID-19. That's what we're going to be talking about now. So I thank you all for coming on in. Thank you. All right, folks, wrapping up there. Uh, that is a playback of President Biden in the Roosevelt Room in the White House. Uh, not a lot of headlines there, but looks like he is having a meeting. They're talking about the economy specifically uh, among the headlines, not many, but saying job numbers show relief is urgently needed. Uh, and I guess he's getting ready to talk with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. Yeah, I think the framing of the way that the Biden administration has been talking about this is really interesting. What they're using this as an opportunity to, as even though this is a was a very good report in many ways, they're using it as an opportunity to say much more is needed. Ron right. Klain, the White House chief of staff, said if today's report is good enough, he said this on Twitter, then know that at this pace, it would take until April of 2023 to get back to where we were in February 2020. Yeah, just looking uh, at some comments uh, on Twitter from our own Jennifer Jacobs, uh, and I guess this is coming from the Biden team, but talking about the U.S., specifically when it comes to small businesses, losing some 400,000 small businesses. You just ride up and down the streets of New York, and you can see all of uh, the businesses, restaurants, retail that have been shut. 13 million people behind in their rent. Again, I believe this is coming uh, from President Biden and his team there. Uh, and again, being reported by our Jennifer Jacobs uh, on Twitter, who's been following it uh, as well. Uh, it's a reminder that we've made a lot of progress. There's a lot who would say there are still millions out of work. There is still a lot of ground yet to be uh, gotten back. And uh, that's what the president is concerned about. Certainly ahead of what's going to be a very key weekend, Tim, for his COVID relief package. Yeah, it will. Um, look, the the president to that end, Carol, is saying, according to the White House pool report, the rescue plan is absolutely essential to turning this around, getting kids back to school safely, giving a lifeline to small businesses and getting the upper hand in COVID-19. I mean, I can't emphasize the difference between what we saw with President Trump after a jobs print like this versus what we see with President Biden. Yeah. And he's not touting it, right? He's saying, yeah, that's fine. But this shows if you look at it in the context of what's happened over the last year, this is not good enough. Well, and I think it's why the financial markets, to some extent, were a little confused, uh, because we certainly did see a bunch of selling. I think there was concerns about the big number or better than forecast number, and that certainly played into the Treasury trade and higher yields. We saw that 10-year bop above 1.6%, so concerns, again, about the reflation trade and also concerns about inflation and potentially the Fed and monetary policy not keeping ahead of that. That has been one of our major, major themes this week specifically. But again, President Biden reminding, yep, this is progress, but there's still a long way to go. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. To uh, Bloomberg Business Week magazine, it is out online at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg and on newsstands. Uh, and in the issue, a story about how the sheriff that wants a word with Robin Hood. This story by Bloomberg News financial regulation reporter Matt Robinson. He joins us on the phone in New York City. And Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joins us on the access line from Brooklyn. I love this story because there's a line in here 
that says that the secretary has been in deposition since the founders of Robin Hood were still <laughs> in grade school, Joel. That really Snap. puts things in perspective, right? Yeah, that's right. So we're talking about uh, William Galvin, who's the secretary of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And this story um, originated uh, not so long ago when we saw, uh, you know, basically like a, a redhead breaking news alert in the terminal that that um, Robin Hood was being sued in, in Massachusetts. And we immediately were just like, oh, wait, this is Galvin. And Galvin is um, a, a person who within um, uh, Wall Street has been he's sort of a feared regulator. He also, um, it, being in Massachusetts, has a few few different tools at his disposal that even the SEC doesn't have now. Um, so, so Matt, talk to us about William Galvin. Who is he, and, and why why does Wall Street tend to to be so scared of him? Yeah, right. So, you know, Wall Street has been uh, fearful of Galvin because he extracts uh, pretty large penalties uh, after uh, financial crises, and, and he's often out front. Um, compared to some of the other federal regulators. Uh, and what's unique about Massachusetts is they have a new rule there that, that says broker-dealers have a fiduciary duty, which means that they have to put the best interest of their clients above their own. And he's saying that uh, Robin Hood is acting, is that, acting that way with uh, its platform in terms of you know, nudging people to trade, sending, hey, here are the, uh, the most traded stocks, and so that's that's why he uh, often catches uh, a lot of folks' attention because you know other states also look at Massachusetts and what they're up to because he's generally on the vanguard of uh, you know financial regulation cases. So what's really cool about this story um, is I feel like, especially as we know, big regulators. We had uh, the hearing up on Capitol Hill. I feel like it sounds like Matt that Galvin is kind of filling a hole that big-time regulators are not doing and not filling right now. Right. You know, and, and as we see in the story, it's, you know, the federal regulators are often, um, you know, more deliberate in how they bring these cases. And um, Galvin has a unique perspective in that he's, he's taking sort of the 30,000-foot um, foot view of, of regulatory actions in terms of saying, like, hey, is this right? Is this, is this really the best interest of Massachusetts investors getting push notifications about stocks, is this really going to help them make sound decisions? So, um, you know, one thing that Galvin does do is uh, the SEC doesn't like being shown up. So uh, <laughs> when he brings his cases, you know, they don't want to, you know, if depending on how this shakes out with Robin Hood, you know, they don't want to be seen to be weaker than, you know, one state when they're when they're really the, you know, the federal, you know, they're the top shop at the federal level. So what's the worst case scenario for Robin Hood here, Matt? What could happen? So right now, the, you know, they're, they're, they're still going through, um, you know, exchanging documents um, in this case. I mean, what I, w what's likely to happen is maybe there'll be some changes. Uh, you know, uh, a colleague here broke uh, the news that, that maybe Robin Hood is going to go away with its digital confetti um, after, you know, making a first trade. Maybe, they're, maybe they'll pull back some of the quote-unquote gamification that Galvin cites in his complaint trying to make, you know, it maybe less, um, I don't know, if addictive is the right word. But, you know, you could see some regulatory, you know, you can see Galvin pushing for some regulatory changes about how the app interacts with customers. So, Matt, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about how Galvin, um, uh, who, by the way, 
How long has he been doing this job? <laughs> <laughs> 95. What, what's interesting, 95. too, about Galvin, is we, you know, we sat in the, um, the state's archives, which he also uh, runs, because that's part of his role as um, you know, Secretary of the Commonwealth there. You know, he also runs the election. So he has a, like a, a pretty wide um, view of, <laughs> of how uh, state regulatory work, bodies work, and he's really taken his, you know, his office to a new level because you know we're we're often talking about Massachusetts and what it's doing at the regulatory front. There are other states that could be doing the same, but you know he's he's choosing to make this uh, a big issue for him. And and to that end, can we talk about some of the other things that he's found himself engaging Wall Street over? Because there's some big names there, Morgan Stanley among them. Um, uh, what are what are some other what are some ways that he, he's known for making his name? Right, yes. Yeah. So after the financial crisis, he extracted penalties from, you know, the biggest uh, banks on Wall Street, like many other uh, regulators did. I mean, he's kind of like, I, I, I would, I'd have to look at all his cases, but I don't think there's probably a bank he hasn't, uh, you know, a big bank that he hasn't gotten a penalty over. And, and he was a big player in the uh, market timing crisis of the 2000s as well. Um, you know, he, he went after a local firm, Putnam Investments, about how, Folks were, uh, you know, sophisticated traders were sort of skimming off the top from retail investors. And that really pushed uh, regulatory changes then and then, you know, led to the SEC bringing penalties. So he's, you know, he's out, out on the vanguard there and sort of pushing other, you know, not just his cases, but pushing other regulators to, to sort of step up as well. Okay, so uh, you might be on the vanguard in some ways, but um, uh, you, you talked to him in the the hall where we've got births and death certificates. Um, and let's just talk to, about him on a personal level a little bit. Uh, doesn't have a, doesn't have a smartphone. No, he doesn't. Not. He doesn't have a, he's definitely old school. Uh, you know, he does, um, talking to his staff, he likes to make uh, phone calls on the weekends. If he has a long drive, he's, he's often talking to folks and, and, and from what they say, he's always working. So he's, um, you know, not a big fan of, you know, he, he doesn't tweet, He's not, uh, I don't think he's a big emailer. He's uh, a face-to-face kind of guy. Granted, he he's has to deal with Zoom like the rest of us. But um, He doesn't you know, tweet? Yeah. Well, that's a shocker. <laughs> I also love, he drives an, an Impala. <laughs> that is awesome. Right. Hey, for all you Impala drivers out there, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> I think it makes sense for a state employee, right? Um, hey, Matt, uh, what does Robinhood say about all this? You know, Robinhood, you know, basically refutes the allegations that they're they're not saying they, they gamify investing or trivializing it. They're they're saying they're they're opening it up to you know folks who wouldn't you know maybe haven't been investing in the first place. And that's you know, it's clearly true that you know they have moved an entire industry to offer free trading. So they point to hey, we have a lot of a lot of folks you know uh, investing in Massachusetts, and and those who are investing, they're saving a lot of money. They're saving money. They're not they're not paying any commissions on these trades. So, you know, they're, they're very, very clear pushing back saying that, you know, we're a platform, you know, we're not recommending stocks. Yeah, we make it, we have some, some digital, uh, maybe gimmicks. I don't know if they use that word, but they have some uh, digital aspects that other places don't, but overall they're, they're just a platform. 
Just want to mention, too, a headline crossing the Bloomberg CNBC reporting that Robinhood to list on the NASDAQ when it goes public. I mean, you know, Matt, it's an interesting time. I mean, you know, we see so many different industries. The magazine writes about it all the time of just being disrupted, innovation, things going ahead. And I think a lot of folks would come out and Tim, we know, make the argument that this has been beneficial for a lot of individual investors. Yeah. I mean, Matt, you, you, you use the word democratize in your piece, and it's a word that Robinhood likes to throw around a lot. And Galvin pushes back on that, that right? Yeah, he sort of said under his breath, he's like, oh, that's not really fair to democracy. Um, but, <laughs> that's like, that's a big thing. I mean, that, that is their, that is like their slogan, democratizing finance, democratizing investing. Right. Why does he say it right. isn't fair? I, I think for him, he's, he's, you know, he thinks they're underplaying, you know, he thinks that, you know, by getting people involved in the market, it's, it really helps, you know, Robin Hood's bottom line. Right. Mm. He's saying the more people interact with the app, the more people trade, you know, the more order flow that Robinhood send to market makers. And that's, you know, that's who pays them. Right. Robinhood's, right. you know, customer is market makers. That's how they make their money. Well, I don't know if customer is the right word, but their clients are the investors. Right. For for trading. But, you know, their you know, their revenue source are, you know, comes from the market makers. All right. Well, good stuff. And to, qu- to quote him in the story, it's propaganda regarding the uh, democratizing line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, listen, it's a great read. Right now, though, I've been uh, Googling Impala and trying to figure out how much they cost <laughs> or how accessible they are. They're accessible. Chevy. Why did Chevy stop making the Impala? That's what you come up with. It's a great story. And listen, it is. We know Robin Hood already one of our big stories of 2021. Check it out. Matt Robinson, financial regulation reporter at Bloomberg News with us on the phone in New York City. Joel Webb our editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn and check out the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine online on newsstands and of course always on the Bloomberg terminal. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so our top story, no doubt about it, is today's monthly jobs report. U.S. employers adding more jobs than forecast in February, the unemployment rate declining. It did, Tim, kind of suggest that the labor market is clawing its way forward again following what have been a few disappointing months. Yeah, but there is still a long way to go, Carol. Irina Novoselsky is chief executive officer at CareerBuilder. She joins us on the phone from here in New York. Irina, it's great to have you back on the show, I'm, I'm wondering about the trends that you're seeing at CareerBuilder right now. When you saw the jobs report earlier today, did it match what you're seeing at CareerBuilder? Hi, Carol and Tim. Yeah, hi. we talked about a little bit. The <laughs> hi. We talked about the other month. One of the things that we were starting to see is a little bit more job postings around those frontline COVID-impacted industries. Hmm. And so when you look at the recent jobs report today, 90% of the job growth is coming from hospitality and leisure. And specifically, if you look a little deeper, 75% is coming from bars and restaurants, which is just a great positive momentum step for all of us to see. Right, and logical. So so it, does it kind of just say, all right, we're getting back some of what we lost big time. And we know those are two areas or one area in particular, hospitality, that just got killed during the pandemic. Definitely. And we slowly are obviously not even close to the amount that we've lost, but we, we are also seeing that as state by state are lifting restrictions and more and more people are getting vaccinated, we're seeing the job growth that gets posted. And so right now, greater than 50% of the states across America 
are showing double-digit job posting growth. And that's interesting because that's such a leading indicator for job growth to come. There's some really interesting data that you saw at CareerBuilder that I'm looking at right now. The surge in demand for childcare-related positions, a 440% increase in childcare workers, a more than 300% increase in nannies, and then a more than 200% increase in uh, teachers for special education uh, for kindergarten and elementary schools. Why was that? Why is that happening? We saw that happen actually last month as well, and it's just this this movement that as people are going back, getting vaccinated, more and more things are opening up, parents are feeling more comfortable and are looking more for support as they're reentering the workforce as well. Well, so, okay, so a lot of hospitality. What are the other trends? And I, I am always curious, Arena, when we talk to you, you know, in terms of how the jobs market, the labor market overall has been impacted by the ongoing pandemic. In other words, jobs that maybe aren't going to come back, you know, because things have changed in the past year and there are new jobs that are now in demand. How, what, what are you seeing along those lines? And I don't know necessarily if it's jobs, but the supply and demand equilibrium is going to change. What I mean by that is there's a huge part of the population that doesn't have the ability in the roles that they're in today to work from home. And the need and the desire to work from home is only increasing. And so that is going to push an imbalance for many companies. And we're seeing this with last, last month's numbers that small businesses that were many industry COVID frontline industries were having trouble finding people to fill their open roles. That 90%, 90% of small business owners were saying that they had openings that they could not fill. And so as work from home continues to grow and on CareerBuilder.com, we've seen a 195% increase of candidates looking for work from home. In fact, we're seeing 35% of candidates actually taking a job not in their location, mm-hmm. not even near their geography, with the expectation that work from home will continue. And so that does a few different things. One, it balances the, the war for talent between big tech logo names and middle market and small businesses in a way. Mm. The second thing that it does is it flips a little bit of the whole wage conversation of are you going to be paying people based on a role? Because typically you pay it based on the location for that role. But now is the location going to be the company or where the employee works? And then the third piece is we're seeing more and more of a shift of people moving into industries that are having the ability to offer flexibility and work from home, which is going to make those frontline industries a little bit more challenging to find workers to fill those open spots. There definitely feels like there's another column on the Excel spreadsheet of, of okay, you you live near the company or you live somewhere else where it's less expensive to live. <laughs> when you said about 195% increase in candidates who want to work from home, what kind of jobs are they that they're going after? Well, we're seeing shifts. If you think about it, one of the things that we saw material shift was former bartenders and uh, waitresses and restaurant attendants were moving into insurance and financial services and customer service representative roles that were allowing them the flexibility to work from home. And a lot of those roles and industries right now are booming and they've been pretty stable throughout COVID as as houses um, selling have gone up, as mortgages have continued to increase. And so those industries have continued to steadily hire. So we're seeing that shift in their skill set really aligns to a lot of those roles in those industries as well. What does your data tell you about the recovery here? 
you know, we could see in the next few months as states continue to reopen just a, a massive number of jobs being added each month. Given the data that you have, given what you're seeing on the platform, how long does it take for, for us to get back to a pre-pandemic level of employment in the U.S.? It really depends how consistent and broad the vaccine rollout is and how much of the timelines are published so that companies are able really to make budget decisions and have the ability to forecast their hiring needs. One of the things that we saw is in Q4 of last year that when there was uncertainty around the rollout and the timeline of vaccination, that companies were really mitigating how aggressively they wanted to put out open roles. They were much more cautious in hiring. As we've seen in January, February, and even the first week of March, more and more companies are starting to ramp up their hiring. And that there, mm. there's definitely a correlation with states opening up and the vaccine rolling out. So the more and more we can see and companies can get comfort, um, and we're all looking for consistency as we're, we're trying to balance and, right. and move forward with our budgets and set the right financial goals, I think that's going to be a really big part of it. All right, got to run. Hey, have a good weekend. Arena Novoselsky, she is a CEO of Career Builder, uh, joining us on the phone in New York City, breaking down that jobs report. But it's interesting to hear about more people looking for working for home. Yeah, the, the child care data is fascinating. Yeah. It makes I, total sense, though. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up uh, this Friday as well as the trading weekend. It was quite a week. Uh, we're pretty much, as Charlie just mentioned, those numbers uh, pretty much sticking out our highs of the days when it comes highs of the day. Let's say that again. Uh, when it comes to the equity trade, let's bring in Aaron Cannon back with us, co-founder, chief investment officer, uh, chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management, roughly $900 million in assets under management on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. I think I gave you an extra title, Aaron, so just say thanks. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me back. Hey, listen, I want to talk about the market front and center. Um, so let's talk about the trade this week, kind of all over the place. Uh, tech, everybody's questioning, wondering, okay, is this it? It's coming undone. Uh, we definitely have seen a, a fair amount of pullback. How do you see the market trade right now? Well, I, I think the rotation is real, and I think the market's trying to sort out whether or not this rotation into the more cyclical sectors, Carol and Tim, uh, is in the third inning or the seventh or eighth inning. And um, my sense is that a lot of the institutions haven't moved yet, that uh, it would just be difficult for them to be uh, sort of nimble. Uh, in that regard, and that we're still moving through that, that sort of cyclical rotation. We certainly saw that playing out over the last several days, even into this morning, uh, before this uh, recovery. Uh, but I, I, I would also say that clearly the market's trying to really understand where the, equal, excuse me, the equilibrium level is for, uh, for, for interest rates. And, you know, let's not forget that over the last 10 years, the equilibrium rate uh, relative to inflation was, was flat. Uh, we're still 50 basis points below that level. And historically, over the last 25 years, it's closer to 100 or 200 basis points above the inflation rate. So I think the Fed is, is trying to sort this out. The market's trying to sort this out. 
and, uh, and, and we have huge growth that is on the horizon for this year and uh, to some extent next year. So, so how much higher are rates going to go in the, in the near future? I mean, what are you thinking about when it comes to the 10-year? So, uh, in short, of course, we don't know. Uh, I would say that uh, given the, the largesse of uh, rising uh, public debts here in the United States and the demographic headwinds, that over the secular period of time, we would expect uh, the Fed to remain extraordinarily dovish and for rates to remain historically low relative to that sort of break-even inflation rate, Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, could rates move, for example, 10-year rates are trading right now at 1.55%. Mm-hmm. Could we see them trend up to 1.75%, uh, perhaps, maybe even 2 But we do think that, you know, at, at some point, uh, probably... Uh, within the next 25 to 50 basis points, there's uh, significant indigestion that the equity market will feel as a result of uh, of that, if that in fact happens. Well, you know, and to be fair, you wrote about back at the end of uh, 2020 in December, you were kind of giving everybody a heads up when it comes to fixed income yields, getting back to more normal levels relative to inflation, you know, and looking at, you know, the comparison in terms of fixed income yields versus what we were seeing when it comes to S&P yields. I mean, are we at that point, do you feel like, Aaron, that it makes sense to reposition when you compare earnings yield on the S&P versus what we're seeing on a 10-year Treasury yield? Well, I still think a strategic allocation for, for many clients is the right approach, but I do believe what does that, that mean? if you... What does that mean? Well, <laughs> if, if you think of fixed income or Treasury specifically as sort of that historical airbag relative to the equity markets, that during times of strife and struggle in the equity markets and the overall economy, Treasuries tend to perform well, are Treasuries going to sort of play that important role going forward? And I think that's sort of the implication of your question. We think that the answer will, does remain yes, but there are a lot of caveats that the airbag may be smaller, thinner, and more vulnerable to pop, uh, partially because historically we're still at a rate relative to inflation that's, that's thin. Uh, if we were trading at 100 basis points above inflation, we think that airbag would be stronger and bigger, and therefore that strategic allocation would make even more sense. But we're not giving up on uh, th- that relationship uh, at, at this juncture. So, so what does that mean when it comes to fixed income as a portion of a portfolio? Are you, are you trimming fixed income and going more equities in general? Obviously, it depends on the person. It depends on the client. It depends on the family. But I, I'm wondering if, if you're starting to think that equities uh, should serve a, a bigger portion than traditionally. Well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, we always have, um, or always, we, we tend to have an overweight to equities for most uh, families where we're thinking about the long-term 5, 10, 20-plus years or our non-for-profit clients, which is hopefully eternity. Um, but we, we also shouldn't forget that we still don't think that relationship between treasuries and equities has broken down. I mean, even this week, if you were to look at the last five days, which day were equity prices up and every part of the treasury yield curve had yields down it was today mm-hmm. it was today and finally we, we you know that's real stabilization that we finally witnessed in the market and the equity market sought relief and 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 was able to to trend higher we don't think those relationships have have completely uh, broken down um, does that not mean that treasuries can't move higher and uh, on the margin and, and equities can't perhaps trend sideways to higher? No. I mean, we, we certainly uh, think that that very well could, could be the case. But um, Right. Yeah. 
safe to remember too, right, Aaron, that I mean, part of this is, I mean, we want to see yields move up. This is the economy recovering. Yes. I mean, I think that um, certainly we would like to see yields return to a more normalized environment, but I think that monetary policy and frankly, even fiscal policy and our deficit levels have to normalize as well. We just spent 15% of our GDP last year on deficit spending. We're going to spend that again this year. Mm-hmm. The Fed expanded their balance sheet massively over the last year. Um, and so that we're still in the midst of a very unconventional fiscal and monetary policy regime. Right. And we also have secular uh, headwinds of uh, aging demo- uh, demographics, both here and, and abroad, not just in developed worlds, That's but emerging point. markets. Even China, so, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you take a look at growth here this year, we think it could be well over 7%, perhaps double digits. But by the time you make it to 2023, right. it's going to be back probably below 2% again. And I think the Fed knows that. And that's why their policy remains sort of uh, status quo at the moment. Yeah, it's like the rabbit, right? Or, you know, you take off and then all of a sudden you're tired. (laughs) We could see that play out. Um, Aaron, be well. Have a good weekend. Aaron Kennan, co-founder and chief executive officer, Clear Harbor Asset Management uh, from Stanford, Connecticut. Or like a great race car. Like you go around the track a couple times and all of a sudden... I think the rabbit works too. (laughs) I was reading something of my daughter. Or me trying to run. I, I feel your pain. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.